This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Eric Hanyashek, Laura Talpe, Ludger Wissman, and myself have put out the second version of a paper that shows that student achievement by socioeconomic status has not changed over the last 50 years. Now, the new paper that we have written has the title, well, Rick, you tell me what the title is, Long-Term Trends. Long-Term Trends in U.S. SES Achievement Gaps. So we thought it would be interesting if Rick and I explained to our listening audience just exactly why we put out a second paper when really nothing has changed since our first paper appeared in Education Next about a year ago. In that, in that um, paper, we said that student achievement uh, had persisted, the gaps between the high-end performing students and the low-end performing students was as wide today as it was in the past. It's not any wider but it's not any better despite all of the resources that have been poured into American education for the explicit purpose of closing the SES achievement gap. So Rick, why have we put out this paper that simply says the same thing all over again? Well, I think as with much research, you can't just look at the conclusions on the last page and decide that the uh, analysis and the answer is warranted. So what we've done over the last year is actually try to make sure that we have the story correct from a scientific standpoint. And it's amazingly difficult to do that. As you know, Paul, from our work, it is really hard to trace some sort of squishy topic like socioeconomic status in a consistent way over a long period of time. So what, you know, uh, I, I, that's exactly right, and I agree with this completely. Uh, it was really important to do. Of course, we tried to do it the right way from the very beginning, but as a result of our publication, it got a lot of attention out there, and we got some feedback from people, and they sort of said, well, have you done this? Have you done that? And and that's what prompted us to take a, a, tech, a second look at it. And uh, one of the things we did look at was how are we measuring socioeconomic status? So, so what's the, the wrinkle there that we Well, that's we at? really key. And there are a variety of ways that people have used to measure socioeconomic status. If you look through the literature, the most prominent way that people have measured it is whatever data they have in their data set. Yeah, but really, now, the official way of doing it, I think, is to say uh, it's got to be something that captures how much resources there are in the home, and, you know, what, how much does the household have to, to spend on their children's education. But it also has to pick up some of the cultural resources in the home. And so... Uh, They've, they've generally used parental occupation, parental education, and then some measure of income, whether it's a direct measure of income or the possessions that they, that they have in the home. And that's pretty common in a lot of the literature. Well, there's a little bit element of each of those anytime anybody says 
They're measuring socioeconomic status. People have been trying to do this, and we have make, made a choice that we think now is pretty well justified. We use measures of parents' education and of a long list of items in the home, from books in the home to dishwashers uh, to places to study. And one of the reasons why we've gone back and forth on this is that it is hard to get data sets that have consistent measures of these over time. And so we had to make some analytical decisions about how to splice together different data sets to get a consistent measure. Yeah, so one of the funny things about uh, surveys that are conducted out there by the National Assessment of Education Progress, that everybody knows about, the nation's report card, or by PISA, the international study that compares the United States to uh, uh, 15-year-olds in other country and other countries, uh, or the or the TIMS uh, trends in science and and math achievement. All of them kept changing the way the questions they asked to sort of sort of get a measure of how families differed in their education and their material possessions. So why did they keep changing these? Well, survey designers do different things. But before we get down back down into the weeds, where we're really into the weeds here, let's circle back for a second and say, why is this an important question? For a long time, it's easy to date it by Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty in the mid-60s. We have been interested in trying to make sure that children of poor families from poor families are not handicapped for their lifetime. So we've been looking at how the achievement and the future economic prospects of kids look for uh, kids that grow up in poverty or in disadvantaged households versus those in more. And so this is a really important issue because we throw all kinds of programs at trying to reduce these gaps and to increase intergenerational mobility. Yeah, like Head Start and compensatory education, which the federal government funds. And uh, there's all kinds of court cases which order the uh, reassignment of money in such a way as to make it more equitable. So there's been a huge array of programs at the state level and the federal level that have been focused specifically on this topic. Absolutely. And what we've never done on a very consistent basis is to say, if you look over time, when we've been consistently providing more effort into closing these achievement gaps, has it worked? Now, there's some evaluations of the individual programs you mentioned, and in general, those evaluations don't show that they're working so well, and that leads to new programs and so forth. But it's hard to add it up, and that was, that was the whole motivation here. Can we add up what we've been doing and say, are we succeeding as a nation? And, of course, the interesting thing is, is that there's pretty uh, solid data on how students have performed over the last half century. We have these four big surveys that have been administered consistently over long periods of time, which allow you to actually 
track the trend line that has been uh, occurring over the over the last half century. And uh, if you do the analysis with a certain amount of sophistication, and we think we have, you can actually see whether or not those gaps, those differences between uh, families that have parents with a lot of education and a lot of material possessions, whether or not their kids are doing as much better than the ones that don't have those resources today as in the past. And the answer we got was no change. It's just the, they've always been doing a lot better. 50 years ago they were, and 50 years ago now it's the same way. So we had to underline one of the things that you said that went into this analysis. We looked for data that could be compared over time, that was designed to tell you are things getting better or worse? And as you point out, we found four major um, surveys, assessments of performance over time for a random sample of the U.S. population. So we were pretty confident doing that. The problem, as you point out also, is that um, there hasn't been a consistent measure of socioeconomic status so that we could tell are the kids in the bottom 20% of the achievement distribution from the bottom 20% of the family income and resource distribution? Or are they from the top or are they a random set? Yeah, well, one of the criticisms that we got when we first put this paper out was that, well, let's look at each of these assessments uh, separately. Let's look at how NAEP, what, what the trend is in NAEP reading, what the trend is in NAEP math, what the trend is in PISA, what's the trend in, in TIMS, and, and now we have added a whole vast appendix so that the reader can see exactly what's happening in each and every one of these surveys. And basically, they all look alike. I think there's a little bit of difference with PISA. PISA has a more optimistic story uh, to tell over the last 20 years. Things do seem to be going down in PISA, but that's, that's not confirmed by the other surveys, which show it uh, actually even going up a little bit. So when you combine it all together, it looks just like it's a straight line across the page. Absolutely, and that's, that's the startling thing, that for all of our efforts, it's a st straight line. Now, the common argument on the other side is that, yes, we've been doing a lot, but we had to do that to make up for what would have been the case if we hadn't, that families were getting worse over time, and as a result, we put a lot of resources in that made it so it didn't have a adverse effect on the kids, but at least held it constant. So, in other words, the schools are doing a better job today of overcoming the uh, differentials that are occurring within the family, and uh, the gaps are widening in the family, but the schools are, are closing them up. That's one possible interpretation of our finding, that it's, right. it's schools fixing what's getting worse and worse in society. Of course, the opposite could be true. It could be, and I tend to think this is the case, Oh, I, it's just my speculation. It's not like we've got evidence on this point, but it could be that actually <coughs> nutrition and uh, medical services for the disadvantaged segment of our population are much better today than they've ever been in the past. We have food stamps. We have Medicaid. We have 
the food lunch program in the schools. We have breakfast uh, program in the schools. We've got a lot of programs that are designed to improve the quality of nutrition of low-income families. And so therefore, it could be that actually kids are coming to school with a greater capacity, uh, those who are disadvantaged, than in the past, and the schools are not adding to that, if anything. Other things about the schools have deteriorated over time. Can't prove that, but that's another possible story. Well, clearly this is beyond our research capacity at the current time. What has never been done, even though the importance of families has been mentioned for a long period of time, what's never been done is to understand exactly what components of family differences lead to achievement differences, and how have they been changing? So again, what people have done when they analyze student achievement is to take whatever measure they have of the families, of family size or parents' education or incomes or something, and use whatever is available. But no attempt has been made to understand the causal structure of the family. And so we can't answer the different ways of interpreting the data that you point out. Well, one of the things that uh, we felt we had to address in this paper was why <coughs> we were getting findings that were different from those that uh, professor at Stanford University, Sean Reardon, uh, produced uh, back in 2011, where he said, actually, the SES achievement gap is getting worse and worse. He called it the income achievement gap because he was using family income as his measure of SES. And so one of the questions that we never really answered in the first draft is why did we get different findings from the findings that he had? And so in this draft, we in an appendix to the paper discuss at, at some considerable length the particular uh, research strategy that uh, Sean Reardon employed. And uh, we think it had a number of problems with it. And so actually, when you sort of address those problems, uh, we find that he does not show an increase in this gap. He finds instead that the gap is just f as flat as we found it. Yeah, basically, we think the way he constructed his data set, which was a very... Um, elaborate uh, attempt to pull together all the data he could find on income and achievement, the way he constructed it tended to introduce um, some bad observations of the data, that, that it was hard to get good measures of parental income from doing such things as asking the kids, how much does your parents make? Um, and so if you uh, ignore the particularly difficult or badly measured data points that he has, then you get this flat line that we get. Still, you know, one of the reasons we didn't discuss this in the first paper is because, you know, this is the one and only paper out there that's tried to do the same thing that we've done. And you've got to give Sean Reardon credit for back in 2011 saying this is a really interesting topic and one should dig into it and find out. And so, we learned a heck of a lot from him, and we think we are building on his accomplishments, even though our findings are, are different from his, and uh, even though we think he ran into some problems uh, that uh, 
that led him uh, astray in terms of the findings that he uh, produced. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, I don't think we should dwell on the differences. I think we should dwell on the fact that we have now, I think, a pretty strong, firm answer from different perspectives on what the achievement gap looks like. And what we see is SES achievement gaps haven't changed. And that's where we get from very different ways of looking at the data. So thinking about the future, is this where you see things are in the next uh, 50 years or even the next 20 years? Or do you think we are now putting together an educational system that's got the capacity to close these SES achievement gaps? Well, we see no evidence that um, the future looks different than today unless we change what we're doing. And we haven't changed what we've been doing in schools for a long time, essentially. We've in, put more money and, and resources into them, but there's little evidence that we've been getting much of a return on those investments. So in my opinion, if we really are worried about intergenerational mobility and the achievement gaps that lead into intergenerational mobility, we have to do something different. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is, is that we actually did see a reduction in the gap between whites and blacks for about 25 years. In the early part of the period that we're looking at, we see a closing of the, of the black-white gap. And, and yet, that doesn't translate into a closing of the SES gap. In well, fact, the SCS gap is exactly is as wide within the black community as it is within the white community. I agree, and I think you can, in my mind, uh, it's it's rough, but you can explain the closing of the black-white gap by the desegregation policies in the schools that grew out of Brown versus the Board of Ed Education. And those desegregation policies, both for family location reasons and for court judgment reasons, have stopped. So we're, we're not getting more desegregation of schools. But again, since yes, no, I think that's right. I mean, especially in the South is when you see the closing of the gap between blacks and whites. And that's where you got the greatest desegregation in the United States. And so, but that pretty much comes to an end, not only in the South, but across the country in about the last 20 years. It's, so it's been pretty stable ever since. So, you know, and so therefore that gap isn't closing either. That's right. So we come back to, we have a long list of programs and policies that you listed at the beginning that we're using to pursue closing achievement gaps. And the one thing we can conclude, whether it's because it's making up for families that are too tough or whether it's not, well, the one thing you can conclude is that it's not working. It's not getting the results that we want. And so we have to think deeper about is there a way to, in fact, close these gaps? Well, a very popular proposal right now is we need to spend a lot more money on education. The federal government needs to commit many more resources and uh, we need to pay teachers much higher salaries, and we need to, uh, in other ways, uh, concentrate our resources on the uh, disadvantaged. Is, do you think this is, do you think the country is going to be able to solve this by the mobilization of more resources? I don't think it's just resources. Um, as you and I know, we were involved in this other activity of the 
Hoover Education Success Initiative, which is trying to say what does research evidence say about important school policies. And one of the first papers out of this activity, this initiative, looked at teacher compensation. And the evidence there seems to say that first we're underpaying our teachers a lot, but that if we're going to get results from increasing compensation for teachers, we have to tilt the scale somewhat toward more effective teachers and away, away from less effective teachers. Now, if you ask me to project out into the future, will that happen? I think it's possible to happen, but there are lots of forces that resist using compensation, which is a big element of the spending and resources, that resist using compensation to get the results we want. Well, thank you, Rick. This has been a great opportunity to explore a topic that both of us have spent a lot of time looking at. And uh, those of you who want to dig into the details of uh, the paper that was published in Education Next a year ago on the you know, unwavering achievement gap, can now find it online. Well, the, there is a version at the National Bureau of Economic Research of a new working paper that has our current results, or you can get it off my website. Or you can find it at the program uh, on education policy and governance at Harvard Kennedy School. So lots of chances to take a look at this paper if you're interested. Well, thank you, Rick, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Uh, please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.